0: Welcome to the DeepRinter Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I am the founder and lead curator of DeepRinter Movies. We are a pop up cinema based in London. This one came about in a funny way because, well, firstly, I'm a fucking huge fan of Joe's work and everything he does. I think he's remarkable and he's a godfather of indie cinema. And we emailed his agent asking Would Joe want to contribute to this Vice article we were writing And then I got an email back from Joe directly saying I'm not really a fan of that director But Deeper Into Movies sounds awesome I'd love to hear more A few days later I'm having a two hour phone conversation with Joe Talking about movies, Deeper Into Movies I'm getting in all my questions about his work and his, how he makes so much so quickly for, for what appears to be so cheaply he's just a fucking hustler and he's so charming and funny and fascinating and he's the best laugh listen out for it anyway I invited him on the podcast and it was great man this is like a full on TED talk if you're an aspiring filmmaker or if you're in a creative rock. Ru- or just struggling to get your art out there, I think you're going to get something from this because Joe is so inspiring and there's great gems of advice. This is a big boy episode. This is me and Joe Swanberg. There he is
1: hey, what's up?
0: how are you good how's it going really good man How's your day been?
1: uh not bad a little busy I'm in the uh process of moving the video store so
0: how is that going
1: I'm um, good i'm gonna i'm uh it's just a lot of work uh, like I set it up in uh, May we've already sort of outgrown the pizza place we were in and now I'm giving it a more permanent home. But it's just a lot of um, rejiggering and shuffling and just trying to figure out what I want it to look like, how many titles I'm going to have, all that stuff.
0: These are exciting problems to have. Of course. What are you calling the store?
1: Um, it's called Analog. And um, I'm going to start uh, my own VHS label, Analog branded VHS label as well. Um, putting out um, some some new and some, like, repertory stuff.
0: We've been really struggling to work out how to go from digital to analog. Let us know if you work out how to... I know, obviously, I know how to bounce from analog to digital, but
1: yeah. going
0: backwards has been a real... I know, it's I been one of, my,
1: one of my big missions this year to try and figure out whether that... You know, the scale just reduces drastically, so it's... Um, Like when I do my VHS label, I will probably max out at like 100 VHS copies of certain titles. That'll probably be as big of a run as I do. And it's so wild to imagine that's just such a small number of copies. And um, so the like economy of scales falls apart. You know, you really um, can't make money off 100 copies of something unless you charge a fortune for them. yeah. Which I don't want to do. You know, I think VHSs should cost like 25 bucks or something like that. So it's interesting just to imagine like, okay, cool. So I'm going to do a run of 100 and I want to charge something like 25 bucks. Like it's sort of, you do the math backwards. And if you pay an artist well to do box design and you split the money equitably filmmakers and stuff, there's nothing left over. You know, you maybe make $100 or $200 for yeah. a VHS release. So I don't think it financially makes sense. You know, it's it, it's just not about that. It just has to be a passion driven pursuit yeah. where it's, it can pay for itself. You know, it's not going to lose money, but.
0: Yeah, because even bouncing from down to a deck, you know, from video to video, That's got to be recorded in real time. You can't, obviously you can't just click and drag and stuff. So that's going to be a painstaking process, but this is still such a super fun project.
1: I think that I'm going to, I think that it makes the most sense to do it myself, but then that is an upfront investment as well in, um, equipment and, um, QCing and everything too, because, uh, yeah, I don't know what the scale, what the like duplication scale is. But it's conceivable if I start out trying to do it myself and it's just a nightmare that I will then hire one of these companies that does the duplication.
0: When I finished uni and was broke, I did a really shitty thing. Well, kind of shitty. Um, the Brown Bunny wasn't available on UK DVD. Uh-huh. So I just started putting bootlegs on eBay for £30 each and they were just selling uh-huh. like crazy but I was doing all the duplications myself of just before I go to sleep, hit and play on the DVD and record yeah. on the VHS. And I was just selling loads and I paid for I paid for my summer and went to a couple of festivals. And then I got an email from Vincent Gallo on eBay, just opening line, hey prick. Yeah. <laughs> and just take the fucking v- videos off now and I won't sue you. And if you piss me off, I'll go back and work out how many you've sold. Yeah. And I'll send out to my lawyer and work out a big fee for you and just fucking ruin your life. So yeah. Just stop. And I was like, I'm sorry it was kind of coming from a place of being broke, but also no one in the UK has seen the movie because it's got no UK distribution. And he's like, I'm fucking working on it, right? Just <laughs> 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 so yeah, that yeah. was my one foray into videotapes.
1: Yeah. Well so, these filmmakers in Spain, um, like remade Hannah Takes the Stairs without asking us. And then we got an email from them that was like, Hey, is this okay that we did this? It was like too late already. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Like, I think I'd feel the same about um, dub you know, VHS dubs of my movies somewhere. Probably I'd be like, Wow, that's cool. Can I have a copy for free, please?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I really risk anyone who takes the length to remake a small indie movie like that. I think, yeah. Just, yeah, I think you've earned it in a I know. Way. we.
1: we I, I talked to my producer. I was like, what do we do? Like, uh, it's too late. They've already made the movie. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, I guess we give them our blessing. Um, but it was really wild. It was like funny, just co- coming. I don't know w- w- what um, place it was coming from, but.
0: Did they shoot it all the same on like, uh like a mini DV vibe or something.
1: It looked digital, like on just one of the like modern um, digital cameras. This was a couple years ago, but um, we all got a big laugh out of it. Like I remember Bujowski and Todd Rohall and some of the other people in the
0: movie. Just... That'd be amazing that the who re- everyone being recast. Yeah, they yeah. all got to
1: see their like <laughs> Spanish, you know, their Spanish counterparts <laughs> getting to imagine like, who, okay, if I was like um, an actor in Spain right now, this is um, who they've cast to play me. <laughs>
0: So if we go back to the start, what kind of movies were you watching growing up that really sparked your passion for filmmaking?
1: Um, I, well, Raising Arizona was the first one. That's like my first real memory. I was in high school, maybe freshman year of high school. Um, My first real memory of um, a movie ending and just feeling like, God, I really want to make movies. Like I like whatever I just saw, like unlocked something in me. I see a path towards um, like a specific style and sense of humor really registering outside of the mainstream. Um, Because I'd already had, like, I feel like my musical tastes were already punk musical tastes, you know? I was already leaning away from the mainstream towards alternative, more punk sensibilities, but hadn't really discovered that vibe in films yet. And then, you know, I just had such a voracious appetite. Like, I just spent high school devouring movies. I just watched so many movies. And I was staying up late. Like, um, Bravo Bravo sort of, like, moved into reality TV at some point in the early 2000s. But in the 90s, when I was in high school, Bravo was showing, like, um, commercial-free foreign films. And especially at night, there was, like, almost no content restriction. Like, they were putting up... R-rated, you know, f- movies, Fellini movies, like, um, i trying to think what else I was like watching on Bravo. The classics, kind of. I mean, a, a, sort of like a Criterion Collection vibe of um, awards you know, recognizable international directors. But um, I had never seen any of those movies. And so that was kind of like part of my education was just whatever Bravo was showing. I was so, my appetite was so huge, I would just follow them down whatever rabbit hole. And then I discovered Lars von Trier in movies and um, just started seeing... I remember Crumb was a really big one for me. Michael Haneke's Funny Games was a big one for me. Like, just realizing like, oh, there is this punk sensibility and this real... And then John Waters was um, really huge, only because it was so obvious that those movies were very low budget and made amongst a group of friends. And so... I feel like maybe my junior year of high school, I started watching John Waters stuff and then I was like, oh, I could make movies. You know, this is like totally a feasible path. Um, they're just not going to look like Hollywood movies. You know, the, the the way to do it is to follow the lead that these more like lo-fi punk rock guys
0: went. And what was your film school experience like? It was
1: great. It I, Sort of shocking at first, like I, I went to film school in Carbondale, Illinois, Southern Illinois University, and um, I went down there loving um, Jim Jarmish, Hal Hartley, Spike Lee, you know, John Sayles, like all these yeah. 80s New York um, low-budget independent filmmakers. And so I thought I was going to go to film school and be taught to make feature films, you know, low-budget feature films. And when I got there, I was uh, slightly horrified that they were showing us um, a lot of experimental stuff, a lot of doc filmmaking, like my film classes, we were watching Stan Brackage and um, Herzog documentaries from the 70s. And I, that was just like, not why I went to film school. You know, I was like, I, I want to be Kevin Smith. I don't want to be Stan Brackage, Like I'm trying to make right. movies. Um, But it was such an awesome education, you know, it just really um, went from like slightly annoyed and confused to like, whoa, oh my God, there's like such a huge world of cinema I've never even heard of. like, And, uh, you know, dating back to the 50s and um, all of these cool filmmakers that were trying these crazy techniques or making these like really wild movies. And so I loved it. I mean, o- over the course of the time there, I came out of film school thinking I would make documentaries. Like, we we shot 16mm at my school. We edited on Steenbecks. Like, it was a very analog. Um, and I was in film school from 99 to 2003. So this was right at the era where Mini DV, Final Cut Pro, came out in 99, I think. Um, so it's almost like I was sneaking digital on the side. Like my formal film school education was like, you're not even allowed to shoot video, you know? Like they insisted for senior projects to be shot on film, edited, conform. we conformed our own negative, we finished to a film print. And then like me and all my friends were sort of slyly like, oh my God, there's this like digital editing software, there's these cheap cameras, like, like Linklater and Spike Lee and these guys are starting to use this stuff. Like. So it was really a cool time to be in film school. I feel like I got the best of both worlds. I got a very old school, formal film education. And then, you know, sort of on our own, we were able to um, pick up the new tools and start playing around with those, too. And then when I got out of film school, it was um, my whole world was digital. You know, it was just so it made so much financial sense. Um I was just working like a part-time web design job downtown Chicago and then cobbling like a few thousand dollars together every once in a while to shoot. And so shooting on little mini DV cameras and cutting on my laptop was the only realistic path to start making stuff.
0: looking back at my film school era we were well one i think everyone was out to out geek the other person on their Um. obscure film knowledge and stuff and it would have been such a better experience if everyone just dropped their god and was just honest that i haven't seen everything (laughs) i enjoyed the recent american pie movie this is all fine and the same we were really shitty to the lecturers as well anyone who was once a filmmaker who went into lecturing we were like you guys are losers you guys are really- yeah. we had no sense of the real world <laughs> you know now you hear like todd salons is the film lecturer yeah that amazing guy who made roger dodger as a full-time lecturer and just shot it yeah. late at night we just no sense of just being yeah real dicks man i had a great t- i had a great time but i wish i was just
1: yeah humble a little more humble
0: humble. (laughs) just yeah not such an (laughs) arrogant prick like i know there it's the right time
1: for it though you know it's like life is going to beat the shit out of you anyway so you might as well have an era where you walk around thinking you know everything and
0: yeah but it's true when the mini dvs came out we we had to film a documentary as one of our big assignments and we decided to just to film my friend trying to go three days without sleep like 72 Mm -hmm. hours Mm -hmm. so but i said let's not let's shoot it almost like a Jackass sketch or something yeah and just and we just had like free i mean like the sony pc 120 i got because i knew chris cunningham Mm -hmm. was using that on apex twin videos and stuff so we just used a bunch of those but yeah it was crazy it was so liberating when you have something that you can just hold in the palm of your hand because those i
1: know it's life-changing
0: and the same when we saw like the Dogma movies and stuff where they were just like putting them on like fucking gun yeah. poles and like swinging them oh. around the room and stuff going for like giant, almost like Evil Dead kind of zooms mm-hmm. and stuff. It was spectacular.
1: Yeah, I, I feel very lucky. I mean, that era was so wide open. I, You know, it's just a luck of chronology that I ended up in film school in the late 90s. But, oh my God, like, so, the Dogma films were so inspirational. Like, just to have these world-class filmmakers. Like, Lars von Trier was so famous, so lauded, and, and you know, was coming from such a stylistic place. Like, his early movies are so slick. They're, like, very yeah. commercial. <laughs> And then to have someone like that be like, nah, actually, what if we just like got rid of every bell and whistle and really went back to just the grimiest dirt floor level of filmmaking? As a young person, I was like, this is amazing. I mean, you know, these big guys are saying that like what me and my friends, it's the only thing we could afford anyway. They're saying there's like artistic merit to working this way that you could choose to even if you could have a ton of money in a big budget. And um so it was so cool. I mean, I, I I really felt like everything in the cinematic universe at that time was like, just go do it. It's cool. Just go do it. Like you have the tools. Make shit. Um and yeah, I don't know. I just was um having such a fun time and it felt so dynamic and alive. Though also, we, we were snobby about film versus digital a little bit, you know, it's kind of like, there, there was a sense that like these digital movies were like slightly less than or something. And that real filmmakers shot film. Um, and then over the course of film school, I felt like that just like completely flipped. Like by the time I got out, it was kind of like, yes, yeah, cool if you could shoot film, but you know, it was, it's unrealistic for most of us.
0: The first movie I saw of yours was Hannah Takes the Stairs at the ICA mm-hmm. London in 2007. Uh-huh. And looking back, that was such an OG cast of indie talent who all went on to do incredible things like Mark Duplass, Andrew Jabowski, am I saying that right? And Greta Gerwig. How did this group come together?
1: Um, I met... A lot of those filmmakers at South by Southwest, my first movie was there in 2005, and um, The Puffy Chair was there, the Duplass Brothers film, and Andrew's film, Mutual Appreciation, was also there. And I had already seen Funny Ha Ha, like that played theatrically in Chicago. So while I was making my first movie, that was on our radar and we all went to see it just because we were like, whoa, there's this other young guy that's doing this like supernaturalistic, lo-fi kind of movie. And um, Todd Rohall, also who's in the cast of Hannah Takes the Stairs, I met um, maybe the following year when I had LOL out. But, yeah, I I, I had uh, some kind of sense that there was a thing brewing, you know. It was, like, clear that we all shared sensibilities and that despite the fact that we were all working in different cities and didn't know each other, our movies did have... A lot of obvious, um, superficial commonalities, um, and so when I started putting together Hannah Takes the Stairs, I I just thought um, I love working with directors as actors. I always think they're um, interesting, you know, like on their. Richard Brody always says like directors are actors, but they are only usually performing for their cast. Um, right and that the process of directing is like convincing everyone on set everything's fine and under control which is an acting job you know um and so I, you know i think i always just like also felt like um filling a cast with a lot of directors and filmmakers would be great because then they could crew as well you know i i knew we were going to make this thing really small for almost no money and so i had the sense like all right, great. Like if Bujalski and Mark Duplass and Todd Rohall and all these guys are around, like they can just help me light a scene if we're really busy or someone can hold a boom pole or, you know, I'll just have extra um, eyeballs on everything. And um, so, yeah, I kind of reached out to a lot of people. I was so happy they did it. You know, looking back on it now, it's so crazy to imagine a time where all of our schedules would have been light enough that everyone could just kind of accommodate coming to Chicago and making a movie together you know it'd be quite difficult these days but um, but yeah it was really fun we all packed into an apartment we rented a, an apartment in Logan Square like a two-bedroom place and like seven or eight of us were just in there sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags or on air mattresses and um, we just sort of went for it there was no there was a little bit of an outline. But um, it was like a lot of conversations around um, the story, but also just around filmmaking and stuff. You know, this idea of mumblecore was kind of coalescing at the same time, you know. And, and everyone was sort of co- finding their place within the world, you know, like they all came to do my movie. They were kind of like down to be in it. But I also could tell that like Bujawski and Duplass And Rohal were like, well, we also have our own things going on, too. Like, this thing you're doing here is, like, your thing, and, like, we're down to lend our support to it. But, like, uh, yeah, everyone just, like, was very um, nervous about getting lumped into all these movies are the same. And so it, it, it was a really fun, interesting kind of time. But inevitably, we spent years together on the film festival circuit, you know, Like we all were producing work at the same time. There were the usual suspects of film festivals that played the kind of work like ours. So I was just seeing these guys constantly, you know, like every month we would be in some different city together showing our movies. So um, it felt organic and natural to kind of bring them in as
0: collaborators. Was there any competition between you guys around that time?
1: I think so. I mean, it was friendly competition. Like I I, I never felt any bad blood or anything Mm -hmm. like that. there, You know, we were all young and ambitious and had, uh, you know, our own ideas about what we wanted our careers to look like and the kind of work we made. So it felt to me like um, the good kind of competition or healthy yeah.
0: competition or something. But I, I could feel it. You know, it was present. 2011, you made seven movies in a year. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck was going on with you in that time?
1: Yeah, well, well, I shot most of those movies in, in 2010. Well, my um, wife was pregnant, you know, so I what was going on was I was like, shit, I am going to be a dad. Oh, my God. Like, I have a kid coming in November. I better get to work. Um, and also, like, I was working with Adam Wingard and, he, you know, he had um, flown me down to Alabama to act in a segment of a movie A movie that I think played at one film festival and then has completely disappeared off the map. Really? um, What is it called? It's called What Fun We Were Having. And I I think that it played at a genre festival in Canada once. And then there was some disagreements over rights issues or something. So this movie has never shown again. And I've never seen a bootleg pop up of it. And I've never, I don't have a copy of it. Like it just disappeared. And then um, Adam's... Uh, uh, a horrible way to die maybe had just come out and then your next came out and this other movie just sort of got lost or um, just disappeared into nothingness. But, um, but you know, at the time in 2010, Wingard was um, living in Birmingham. I flew down to Birmingham. I acted in this movie and, and he only shot with me for one day. You know, he did this like whole feature in four days. And... I was like, just blown away. And I was like, dude, teach me how to do this. Like how, you know, like not only does the movie look good and like feel like a real movie, there's no tells or giveaways that this thing was made in four days, you know, it's um, looks like every other indie movie I see. So he came to Chicago and ended up like living on our couch for uh, I think two and a half months or something like that. And so like Chris was pregnant I was super nervous, just like in a very busy mode. My, my thinking was if I shoot a lot, I can always edit after my son is born, you know, like that I'll sort of be housebound and that post-production is something that I can like do along with parenting. And also Chris was running an ice cream company at the time. So I knew that as soon as um, Jude was born, she was gonna have to go back to work and I was primarily gonna be a stay-at-home dad. So I was just kind of like, all right, let me get a bunch of movies in the can and then I'll just kind of slowly cut them. But the thing is Wingard taught me how to work so fast that we were cutting the movies as fast as we were shooting them. Like I made Uncle Kent in May of that year. Then in June we shot Art History. I had already been working on Silver Bullets so that was sort of like wrapping up its production. And then I made a movie called Caitlin Plays Herself. Like this was all between like May and August these four movies and Wingard like DP or was like involved in all these things. And, um, then also Morgan, John Fox, um, another, a Memphis based filmmaker. I was so poor also. I mean, I, I need to preface all of this by saying I had absolutely no money. I had li- been living off of my filmmaking. So I also was kind of like, I need to make a lot of m- movies so that I can sell some of them. Um, so that uh, Wingard and I also co-directed a movie called Autoerotic that summer. I don't know. It was just like basically like me, Chris, and Adam Wingard living in a one-bedroom apartment and just f- cranking out movies. I mean, just working like crazy. And um, Morgan was told me that he had made this like softcore gay porn, not porn, but like a sort of softcore gay movie that he had shot for a thousand dollars and he sold it to tla for seven thousand dollars or something and i was like well that sounds like six thousand dollars of profit to me i mean that's <laughs> cool dude um he was like i made it under a fake name you know it's um i did it under um the Shamansky brothers and i was like well could we do another like could the Shamansky brothers be a, a revolving list of filmmakers working under the name of the Shamansky brothers he was like i don't see why not so i um, we made this movie called Blackmail Boys, which I I acted in uh, under my real name, but then I directed it under the Shamansky Brothers. <laughs> and um, Wingard DP'd the movie. We shot that movie in, again, like five or six days or something like that. And then we sold it to TLA. Like, the hustle worked. And so I think we spent $1,500 making the movie. We sold it for $8,000, and we just split up the profits but that whole that whole year was just such a hustle i mean we were just any way we could scrounge or figure out how to make a few thousand dollars um and so then in 2011 i just had this huge pile of movies that i had made you know so it's uh, uncle Camp premiered at sundance in january 2011 um art history and silver bullets premiered at berlin the following month um and then, you know, just staggered all throughout that year, these, like, seven movies just came, like, flooding out.
0: Weirdly, I saw Uncle Ken, still probably my favorite film of yours. I saw cool. that at the London Film Festival. And I have a really weird memory that at this time, it was still, a, um, everyone was there in person. All, all the guests were normally there in person, mm-hmm. all very suited, all very formal. And you sent a quick video intro from your laptop i think probably to using a webcam and nobody in the audience had seen a video intro before and seemed really shocked and (laughs) were just like what who is this guy he's just in his room doing a (laughs) intro just really quick on the fly hey joe sorry i can't be there this is my movie and it's so fucking normal now, but there were really when you had that real old school film critics and the audience and stuff. They're like, "Who is this guy yeah. in his bedroom sending a video in?" <laughs> and then I caught Silver Bullets as well. And can you remember? You said it was really inspired by the death of David Foster Wallace.
1: Yeah, that that, that was huge. I mean, I um, yeah, Silver Bullets is sort of like Check Checkoffs, The Seagull with like me playing, uh, yeah, just like a very depressed, on the verge of suicidal filmmaker whose career has bottomed out basically. um, And who's desperate to like reinvent himself, find new forms and modes of communication. But yeah, when David Foster Wallace killed himself, I just thought, oh my God, I mean, this guy is so successful. You know, like what novelist could ask for like more critical praise like a better reputation like everyone loves this guy and he's just not happy you know it's not making him happy obviously um and you know like i think that i especially liked his stuff because he's from illinois like it always feels a little weird living in chicago and being an artist in illinois you know it's just kind of like a forgotten zone so the fact that david foster wallace is like from Illinois, teaching at universities in Illinois, like writing these amazing, critically acclaimed books about normal people. Um, you know, I always just loved his stuff. I thought he was a great writer and felt really connected to him. And and he did this Charlie Rose interview, the one that I um, excerpt in Silver Bullets, where he just talked about receiving um, so much acclaim so early in his life and then not really having anything to work for after that. You know, it's sort of like uh, he describes it as like the brass ring being like pulled away or something, you know, like you you kind of need a carrot on a stick right. to keep, you know, you need, you need some goal to be aiming at to wake up in the morning and be like, all right, this is the reason I'm making the new movie because I'm still not there. You know, I got to, this is the place I'm trying to get to. He was like, I got there in my 20s. You know, I was the most famous novelist in America, or something. So th- after that, it was like, what? Do I, what am I doing this for anymore? Um, and so, yeah, I just sort of used that, implanted that a little bit onto my character in the movie, or set the stage with that interview.
0: Was that the interview where he's in the white shirt talking about watching Blue Velvet for the first time? I can't remember. I, 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 I don't. Um... Probably was the only interview he did for Charlie Rose, like post yeah, so. Infinite Jest. Yeah, You have this amazing reputation and possible myth about you started off making films on credit cards, you'd max out a card for a little bit, shoot something, or your friend would be out of town for a couple of weeks and you'd move into his house, invite some friends slash actors, yeah. make a movie, edit it, next thing is at a festival... And you've paid off a debt, and you're moving on to the next thing. Can you talk about this? And is it true? And how do you hustle?
1: I I think I for, I forced my way in. I mean, my so my first movie, Kissing on the Mouth, premiered at South by Southwest via like a backdoor entry. Like I was um, uh, do you know the filmmaker Roger Avery? Like he wrote. Yeah, I love fiction. that guy. Yeah, same. So in 2002, let's see. 2001 or two whenever he was making the rules of attraction He was keeping a blog like an early version of a blog. I don't even know if we called them blogs back then But you know a diary an online diary um, Documenting the process of making the rules of attraction. Yeah, I used to read that as well Totally. It was so cool. I mean as a young filmmaker in film school I was just like, oh my god, this is such access like this is so cool to see his inner workings struggles he's having and this is a studio movie you know um really was like so brutally honest about everything and open so in the comments section of his um blog i'll just call it a blog um a community formed like um a bunch of us were just in there every single day fighting about movies like um talking about whatever he had posted and you know after a certain amount of time like there was probably 10 or 20 of us that started to get to know each other none of us even knew each other's names you know we were all kind of operating under handles and but um but that community outlasted the rules of attraction like that movie came out and you know life went on but we still just stayed on Avery's website, like chatting about shit and keeping up with modern movies. And so for years, I, I knew these people, you know, um, and when I was making Kissing on the Mouth in 2004, the, you know, then I was sort of sharing bits of my process on in the comment section of this website. And so uh, once I had I didn't even have, have a cut of the movie, I would say once I had like a 35 or 40 minute like piece put together I just kind of fished it out there for some of those like diehards that had been in there for forever. Like I'll send you a DVD, you know, like I would love your feedback. I don't even know you guys really, but I feel like I know you and I know you're passionate about cinema. And so a couple of people took me up on it. I burned some DVDs. I just sent some like random mailers out. And then one of the guys got back to me and was like, Hey, I am a pre-selector for the South by Southwest film festival. You know, I, um, I'm just on their committee and I'm one of the people that like looks at stuff. Uh, You know, I didn't, I maybe should have asked you first, but you know, I, I passed your movie on to the programmer at South by Southwest. I hope that's okay. I thought it was interesting. I thought he might like dig it. And then I got an email like um, a few weeks later from Matt Dentler, who was like running the South by Southwest film festival at the time that was like, Hey, I really liked your, movie like, would you want to show it at this year's South by Southwest? I was like, yes, I accept. I mean, a hundred percent. And so without even submitting or going through the regular channels, I was like, wow, I'm going to have my world premiere of my first movie at South by Southwest. This is amazing. Like just through a friend favor. And and I thought like, um, this is it, you know, like uh, this is gonna happen. So I go to South by Southwest, I have one of the most amazing weeks of my whole life. I meet the Duplasses, I meet Andrew Bajowski, I meet um, Ty West, David Lowry, um, James Johnson, Spencer Parsons, like some of the people, Brian Poyser, like filmmakers that would become my closest friends and biggest collaborators. I all met that week in Austin. And then I got rejected from every festival after that. Like. I just thought my life was on easy street and I was just going to be like, I was, I was like, I'm in. Rejection, 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 rejection. Meanwhile, all the people who I met at South by Southwest were traveling together on the circuit now. I was so jealous. I felt oh, so wow. left out. I was just like, fuck, man. I met all these cool people and now they're just moving on without me. And But then I was just like, I got to get back to work. You know, like I, I, The only way I'm going to be part of the club is to make another movie. This one is obviously not connecting. And so I made LOL, my second movie, and I sent it to Matt Gentler at South by Southwest. He liked the movie. He programmed the movie. I was back at South by Southwest the next year with a new movie. And I think people were kind of like stunned. You know, They, they, they had all spent their year on the festival circuit. Like none of them had made a new movie, you know. And they were like, how do you do it? Like, how are you back already with a new movie? I was just like, uh, you know, I just fucking blasted through while you guys were like partying and having fun on the festival circuit. I was stuck in Chicago feeling jealous. Um, and then I had Hannah Takes the Stairs the next year. And then I had Nights and Weekends the next year. I think I just wore people down, man. I mean, I, I, the movies stayed super low budget, like not much changed about them. But it, it felt to me internally that like each year, a lot of the festivals that had rejected me the year before took me. And so Kissing on the Mouth played almost no festivals. LOL, sort of got invited to a few more. Hannah Takes the Stairs got invited to a lot. And then Nights and Weekends was treated like a real movie. And without really changing anything, you know, it's just like literally sheer force of just like, I'm not going to go away. You know, I I am here. I'm going to keep making movies. I badly want to be part of the club. Like, let me in.
0: Let's talk about your Netflix show Easy because it seems to be almost the greatest hits of everything you do and you like to explore. Everyday life, relationships, craft beer, friends with benefits, how messy and complicated sex and friendship can get <clears throat> and just over byproducts of being a human being. It was so cool to see because it's not like you've watered down anything you've done there's still some really fucking slow episodes where not a lot happens totally
1: that show was um just such an amazing um like big broad um palette to work on you know i, I had eight episodes a season to tell stories that were interesting to me and so and to work with actors. you know it's just like such an amazing opportunity to work with so many good actors so I loved it. I mean, that was the three years that I did Easy were just such an amazing artistic and professional time for me. I just thought I loved making that show so much.
0: Yeah, it was so exciting to see when I saw episodes that were just so slow with so little happening. I was like, this is fucking amazing watching this on, on the Netflix platform. Totally. How was that? Did, you, did it bring in a new audience for you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. I mean, I think so many more people have seen that show than uh, anything else I've made. You know, Drinking Buddies and Easy are probably um, the biggest, two, And then ha- Happy Christmas and Digging for Fire also um, expanded or um, built upon the Drinking Buddies audience. But, yeah, once I, I mean, the big thing about Netflix is they're global. So my films had always struggled outside of America, you know, like, um A few of my films had DVD releases and small theatrical in the UK. A few had um, gotten small releases in Australia. And then in Scandinavia and some other places where the English speaking is really high. But, you know, internationally, it was tough with my movies. You know, it's like so much of what's going on is based around the nuance of language. It's not like what they say. It's the stammery insecure way they say this line you know and so it just wasn't translating you know even even with festival play like um it wasn't translating and so then suddenly with easy it's like wow um netflix is putting this in every country in the world on the same day and promoting it like a new netflix original series so um like easy was a hit in like saudi arabia um turkey Like places that I don't think, you know, uh, this like um, gay and lesbian festival in Turkey had shown a few of my movies over the years. But outside of that, like when Netflix was would occasionally reveal numbers to me, they're very tight about um, what's going on over there. But every once in a while, I would talk to um, the people that I was working with in Netflix. They'd be like, the show is like a legitimately a hit in Turkey, like it's competing with much bigger shows i was like wow that is so cool i just never would have reached that audience otherwise
0: and i suppose it's so great knowing that people can enjoy like slow cinema just some something as small as an episode about a girl wanting to take a dance class or yeah
1: I, i also thought the show would be chopped to hell in saudi arabia and places like that i was like There's so much sex in Easy. I was like, are the episodes like eight minutes long? Like what's even left after the censors get done with it? They were like, no, 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 it's not censored. It's the same, you know, the same shows going out in all these different places. They were like, the reason it's so big is they're not, you know, they're underfed content, like sexual um, content and stuff. So I felt like, all right, cool. We're like busting through. (laughs) The pervy American shows breaking through to repressed cultures and uh, giving them stuff they're not used to seeing.
0: <laughs> and they like it. So when did you start working with Netflix? When did you kind of level up with those guys? That was 2015.
1: So I... Um... Wait, we should probably go back. This was Drinking
0: Buddies was before.
1: Drinking Buddies was before, yeah. So, so Drinking Buddies came on the tail end of this massive surge of movies. So, I, I you know, all, I spent all of 2011 making and on the festival circuit with this huge pile of movies, this like crazy prolific period. And um, this agent um, named David Koppel, He's still my agent. He's I, he's like um, transitioned to being a manager, so he's my manager now. But he's the only like person in the industry that I've worked with. Um, he reached out to me first when Hannah takes the stairs came out and I was already making nights and weekends with Greta at that point. So I was kind of like, I don't need an agent, you know, it's like my, my movies are just one is flowing into the next. Like, I don't really, there's nothing, um, to benefit you or I from the relationship. You know, it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm on my own path. And so But a lot of agents reached out to me the year that Hannah Takes the Stairs came out. You know, it was kind of like the first time there was industry awareness of my movie. And every single one I kind of politely just said the same thing to, like thanks, but no thanks. And David was the only one who, like, every six months I'd get an email or phone call from him, like, hey, what's up? You know, I saw your new movie. How's it going? Have you thought more about um, trying to make something slightly bigger or within the industry? No, 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 no. Years passed like this, where I kind of shoot him off, and then when my son was born in 2010, I was just like, "Fuck, man! I've been broke for a long time at this point." You know, I've made so many movies. Like, some of them have had success. None of them have really led to money. Like, you know, I, I, I really actually might need an agent now. You know, or someone to help sort of muscle through something slightly bigger. And so I um, met up with him in late 2011. He was a CAA at that point. And I said, okay, fine. I give up, you know, like <laughs> you could be my agent. I'm desperately broke. Like I need to make money, you know. Um, and, and episodes of TV, like a movie for hire, like I, I have zero standards at this point. I will do anything. <laughs> he was like, well, you know, I don't want to do anything with you. Like I like your movies. I just think you can make one of your movies in the industry. I was like, nobody's seen my movies. Like, that's a nice thought, but I've been making these movies for, you know, a long time now. No one's interested, man. <laughs> this is why I'm here talking to you. Like, I'm broke for a reason. You know, it's not because I didn't make a bunch of movies. And he was like, Whatever, like who who are some actors you like? Let's um, you know, figure out how to do this. I was like, Well, I heard through the grapevine that Lizzie Kaplan likes my movies or saw one of my movies and likes it like that's the only literally the only actor famous actor person that i know of that is that i've even heard is a fan i don't even know her but someone passed word along that she knew my stuff he was like all right well you know do you want to meet with her and discuss something and i was like okay if this is how this works sure so I sat down with her. I had I had a loose idea of what became Drinking Buddies. You know, I was kind of like I, I want to do something set in the world of craft beer. Like just my own personal interests in Chicago in 2008 had sort of like drawn me in that direction. Mm-hmm. And by 2012, I was like watching the craft beer thing explode. You know, and I was like, someone should do a movie about this. It's a very particular, special moment in this like evolution of what used to be a very obscure thing going on and is now becoming like mainstream and much bigger so I told her this idea that I had and she thought it sounded cool and she was like I just work with this guy Jake Johnson on New Girl I really love him I think you would like him he's
0: from Chicago how fucking amazing is Jake Johnson M- like my favorite actor I just love him so much he's unbelievable he's so charismatic and yeah real and charming
1: incredibly sharp. I mean, a great storyteller. He makes me laugh harder than anybody I know. He just knows how to tickle my funny bone. And yeah, I love working with him so much. Um, So then a few days later, I went and had coffee with Jake and um, Drinking Buddies just sort of was cobbled together. And then at some point, Lizzie couldn't do the movie and Olivia Wilde came in um, and yeah the cast just formed itself through these conversational techniques and also what was like amazing to me was that most of these actors were just being sent hannah takes the stairs like um before they met with me that's that was the movie that their agents were like sending out and i was like david why like hannah takes the stairs is my third movie i've made 14 movies now like why are we sending this old movie of mine he was like You realize this movie just came out three years ago, right? <laughs> Most directors don't have nine new movies in the intervening three years. Um, just relax, you know. Like it's they don't it's, they don't see it like an old movie, you know. Like they're used to watching a director's previous film from three years ago. Yeah. Um, and so it was like a huge lesson for me. I was like, you know, obviously I'd spent all those years in my own head, and and to some degree watching the audience for my work dwindle down, you know, like Hannah Takes the Stairs, there was like all this excitement about mumblecore, all this um, sort of um, an easy way for news coverage and festivals to kind of like do a little mumblecore section or spotlight on these movies. It really did feel like, oh my God, this is gonna work, you know, like we're gonna make money and move in. And a lot of people did, like it feels like the Duplass brothers and um, some other people really actually did turn that era into like profitable studio filmmaking. For me and a bunch of the other people, it was kind of like 2007 was a high watermark, and then 2008, 9, 10. Even though I had a lot of new work, I was kind of going around seeing the same 15 people show up each year to the same off-the-beaten-path venue, and really starting to feel like, oh my god, this is not. <laughs> this is actually not going to work. Like I, I'm going to have to get another job. And. Then 2011 really was this like crazy turning point, you know, like being invited to Sundance and then Berlin, neither festival had ever taken one of my previous movies. Suddenly within two months, I had gotten invited to these two prestigious festivals and then started putting together Drinking Buddies. And it was such a nice lesson. I was like, oh, it just takes longer than you think, you know, it's not like people didn't like my work. It's not like people forgot about me. It's just like nothing happens overnight. That's just not the way the story goes, Mm -hmm. you know. You're a hustler who came from the bottom up, you just got to wait longer. You know, you got to keep grinding a little extra and then it will tip. And so, Drinking Buddies, we shot in the summer of 2012. And um, my whole life changed after that. I mean, when that movie came out, it was just like everything got so much easier. And I also had these actors, you know, like I, it's like I credit Anna Kendrick and Olivia Wilde for changing my entire life and career because they, you know, what used to be so hard to explain, like I would sit in these meetings with actors and be like, I improvise and, you know, we sort of work from an outline sometimes or maybe not, you know, I've spend like a, half an hour just justifying myself trying to explain like how I work. Suddenly, I was like sitting down to meetings with actors, like ready to start justifying myself. They're like, no, 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 no I know. I, know. I, I talked to Olivia. She said, it's great. Like, I'm here meeting with you because I already want to do it. I was like, whoa, this is new. <laughs> this is way better. <laughs> um, and so that led into the Netflix deal. Like, I um, took a general meeting with Kristen Zollner over at Netflix after Drinking Buddies had come out. And I was still into craft beer at the time. I sort of proposed... The, the storyline in Easy with Dave Franco and Evan Jonakai, Zassi and Aya Cash, that, that like um, craft beer storyline in Easy. Like My general meeting with Netflix initially was just a whole show that was about a beer. You know, two brothers who start an illegal brewery mm-hmm. that it, it grows too fast for them. Like, um, And then they end up getting in trouble because they can't keep up with um, all this stuff. And so... But I, you know, I probably met with her in um, the fall of 2013 or something like that. But it wasn't until 2015 that I came back in with the idea of Easy. So I kind of met with her. We had a cool meeting. We liked each other. But um, in the interim, I worked with um, Billy Rosenberg and um, on a film project. And then Billy went over to Hulu, and or no, sorry, Billy went over to Party over here, Andy Samberg's company, the like um, Lonely Island guys. And he was like, do you want to do a TV show? And I was like, I don't really, you know, I love making movies. I like the 90 minute format. It's just not, I just don't really like TV. And I don't watch TV really. He was like, well, just come have a meeting with me. (laughs) I'm like, let's just um, talk about some ideas. And so I went over there and over the course of like complaining to him for 45 minutes and saying everything I didn't like about TV, he was like, all right, well, you know, what if you just didn't do any of the things you didn't like and started sort of proposing a thing where I was like, oh, huh, maybe I could just make my movies, but they could be 30 minutes long rather than an hour and a half. And we could call that a TV show. And so I went back to um, Netflix and I just was like, okay, I have an idea for a TV show. The idea is it's just my movies, but it's a 30 minute TV show, like an anthology series set in Chicago. Each episode's a different cast and storyline. And um, at the time, I was really lucky because Drinking Buddies was just doing really well on Netflix. Like, Netflix is a data-driven company, Mm -hmm. you know? So they look at the numbers. And Drinking Buddies had, like, landed on Netflix in 2014 or something like that and was just doing really well on the service. And so they were growing super fast. They needed more content. My previous movie was looking good. And so they just said yes. And it was a really um, lucky... Sort of the timing was lucky, and um, the circumstances were lucky.
0: What is left that you want to do? What's your next? Do you set yourself goals, or do you take things as they come?
1: Um, I uh, I have a few projects. I, I'm occasionally writing things. You know, I, I I've been working with this writer Michael Ross for the last year on two different projects. One is a movie and one's a TV idea. Um, and that's been really a nice experience to have, a, to work with a writer, you know? Like, I, I'm just no good at it when I try and sit down and write myself. I'm just so much better on set with improv and stuff, so. But I, I also am realizing that Easy was a very special moment that, I you know, I guess it's sort of like I'm having the bigger industry experience that I had with Kissing on the Mouth when I was like kissing on the mouth got into South by Southwest and I barely had to try and now I'm good to go. And then I got rejected from everywhere. Like I waltzed into Netflix. I sold them a show on basically no premise. They greenlit it. I got to do this really cool thing exactly the way that I wanted. And I was like, all right, cool. I could do this again. And then I pitched some other shows and everyone was like, uh, nah, but if you write a script, come back and talk to us. (laughs) So I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Rejection again. Got it. Um, So I'm just sort of realizing that like, if I care to continue working in TV, it will have to be a more formalized process than easy. Easy was just a stroke of good luck and being at the right place at the right time. So um, finding writing partners and other collaborators has been really useful. And then uh, on my end with the movies, um, I'm going back to, uh, I'm just about to start casting a new film. Like um, I just met with the casting director the other day um, David Koppel, my manager, is gonna be producing it. And we're going back to the Drinking Buddies model. I'm starting with a very simple premise and I'm just gonna go start meeting with actors again. And there was something magical about that experience. And just saying, like, I don't know what this new movie is, you know? Like with Drinking Buddies, I was like, it's set in the craft beer world in Chicago and it's about the sexual tensions and dynamics of these two couples. That's all I knew, you know? And then I would sit down and have these really cool meetings with actors where we would talk a lot get into you know all kinds of interesting stuff and so i figure rather than trying to overwrite and overdo something again i just want to try that where i have a very simple premise again and i go sort of open-ended into these meetings um so hopefully i'll shoot another movie in the spring of next year something with a very similar working method to drinking days
0: you probably get asked this over time but what advice would you give to filmmakers starting out now without the DVD market of the indie the, the smaller films that play at yeah, I don't. I can't see anything the size of Uncle Kent playing a London Film Festival this yeah, year. I, anything that goes in as an indie is kind of like a A twenty four size picture.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, I. Well, my advice to all young filmmakers is this is going to take way longer than you hope it will or want it to, you know, it's just, it is definitely a grind. It's always two steps forward and one step back. There's no logical progression of anyone's career. It's not like you start at A and then you naturally get to B, C, D. It's like you're just bobbing and weaving all over the place and karmically it always feels like as soon as you have a big success there's just some failure waiting right around the corner to like knock you back to reality and but also i try and remind people that that's liberating like you you can just let go you do not have control over your career the more tightly you attempt to manage it the more you'll probably fuck yourself um so what i always say to people is just be yourself you know like don't try and guess what the market wants. Don't try and guess what the industry is looking for right now. Don't try and fit yourself in. Like, what do you want to make? You're only young once. Like, you know, when you're starting out, that is your best opportunity to do the wildest, craziest, most personal, most specific stuff. You will have later in your career to make compromised studio movies or take jobs because you're trying to pay off a mortgage or, you know, all these other things. Like, utilize being young where you have very low overhead, your life is still cheap, maybe you live with roommates, like, you know, keep your lifestyle and keep your living expenses extremely low and take a bunch of chances. And, you know, I've just like noticed within my own group of friends and um, the like festival circuit ride, it's kind of like whoever um, put themselves forward and really made personal work seem to like leg it out a little longer than people who made calling card films or something or you know people who like clearly seem to be like auditioning for the big times. It's like um yeah I just would really encourage people to take the like DIY indie path. You can always make the calling card film later, you know it's that that option never goes away. But you know increasingly as people get older and life's demands become more pressing it does get harder to make the super small personal film, you know? Um, and I think being young is just like a great, um, time to
0: try shit. Great. That's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. You bet. Nice to talk to you. joe Swanbug. boom there you go thanks for listening thank you to my engineer ewan henselwood thank you to joshua eustace aka telephone tel aviv for the beautiful music and thank you guys for listening let me know what you thought of that one until next time deeper into movies signing out